Welcome to Defining Us, America's classroom where education is a revolution of the heart and mind. I'm Stacey DeWitt, executive producer of the Defining Us documentary series and digital platform. Educo is the Latin word for educate. It means to bring out and develop from within. And teachers and students across our country are doing just that. They are leading a movement focused on helping individuals and communities change from within in order to improve the most important social issues of our times, race, gender, sexuality, poverty, religious difference, and much more. Our mission is to help us all get educated on these issues. We will hear from the leading voices in education, listen to the students that are defining the next generation, and learn how we can better understand ourselves and each other to create our own revolution of the heart and mind. Today, we're talking about race and equity in America with Tim Shriver. Tim is the co-founder and chairman of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, CASEL. And he is also the founder and chairman of Unite.us. Tim, you have a long and distinguished career in education. You've been a teacher. You have founded one of the biggest organizations in the country on social and emotional learning, CASEL. Uh, You recently founded Unite. You're the chairman of Special Olympics. Um, This work is incredibly close to your heart. Yeah. I'd like to get started today by getting your opinion on what kind of moment you think we are living through in our country right now. Well, it seems to me clear that we're in the midst of a deep, almost spiritual crisis, a crisis of us. I think we are seeing a crisis of belonging. Uh, a crisis of anxiety, which is leading to despair and a huge amount of depression in our children and throughout our culture. We've lost our sense, if we ever had it, that we have something that we have in common. What binds us together? A common purpose, a common sense of trust, a common uh, belonging that would allow us to do big things. And we can't get by any longer unless we can figure out how to weave the relationships of the future based on equity, based on justice, based on giving everybody a chance. If we can't build those kinds of relationships and those kinds of institutions, I dare say we don't make it. I love that answer. And I think there's so many that believe we're at this watershed moment in our country, a time where we can actually transform and overcome so many of the obstacles that we have faced for so long. I think in the, in the wake of the pandemic of disease, which has revealed a pandemic of separation, a pandemic of injustice and inequality, uh, we've seen this in the protests in the streets and in the, in the extraordinarily violent and unjust murders of innocent people, the lack of justice in our own culture for people with disabilities, for people of color, for, people, for women, the breakdown of a common narrative I mean, you have half of Americans looking at the exact same screen and concluding the exact opposite uh, outcome. In this moment, we're not going to be able to solve big problems unless we can weave, and it's going to take time. Tim, these are complex problems, and as you mentioned, it's going to take quite a bit of time for us to address them. Yeah. I'd like you to just connect the dots for us for a minute and tie what's happening now to what we're seeing in current events. It's a really interesting time to see us in this type of pandemic 
and for all of these other issues around equity and social justice to be rising to the surface as well and really demanding attention. I wish I had a quick fix here, but it's going to take time to develop the kinds of skills that will allow us to rebuild a sense of trust. It's going to take time for us to establish the trust necessary to actually solve these problems because we can't solve them with an us versus them mentality. The only thing all the sides of this debate are doing that it seems to me is similar is using too frequently violent means to try to achieve their outcomes. What I think we're looking for in this country right now are not quick fix solutions, but solutions that have the ability to help us have long-term sustainable change in the way we think, feel, and act as Americans. And we believe that education is one pathway. Now, in the American culture, almost every institution sorts, excludes, creates an us versus them identity. Sometimes schools have done that too. Schools have one core value. Every child has potential. What would it look like if the country had that value and really lived by it? If they really believed that everybody Everyone has a gift and everyone deserves a chance to show their gift and to learn and develop and challenge themselves with rigor and dedication to bringing their gift to life. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what's going on in schools right now and how teachers and students and administrators across the country are implementing solutions at this time in our country that probably would have been difficult to implement a decade or so ago. I think schools are at their best, a place of welcome for everyone. Uh, learning how to make our country feel and act more like a place of welcome for everyone is the lesson that schools can teach the rest of the country, even as we try to make schools capable of fulfilling that vision themselves. I think that's a really important point that schools and educators, particularly the leading voices in education, administrators and school districts across the country, really have something to teach us about these issues, even though many of them are struggling with what's going on in schools themselves. Um, We are not holding up schools as a perfect place here, but when it comes to these issues, we do seem to be at a point in time where we have an opening or an opportunity. What is it about what's going on in education right now that is new and different and gives us a new pathway? Well, I think there's so many important new trends. Uh, One new trend is that this is the first generation of children ever growing up with the internet. Uh, And therefore, distraction is by far the most powerful enemy of learning. And it is almost omnipresently a risk. And so meeting distraction, managing attention has become central to the role of a school. So if you could talk to us about why now, What is it about this generation? Well, we know now that distraction is always a threat, number one. Number two, neuroscience has taught us that if there's no relationship, there's no learning. Third, and and perhaps most importantly, we now have a generation of practitioners who have been doing brilliant work on social and emotional development. They've taught children self-regulation. They've taught children agency and how to use their agency. They've taught children empathy and compassion, and we have the data. Test scores go up, mental health improves, behavior problems go down, 
and even long-term physical health improves. The question today isn't, should we or should we not have a social and emotional learning curriculum? The only question is, are we going to do it well or are we going to do it poorly? Every school has a social and emotional learning program. Sadly, most don't do it well. You know, we hear teachers and educators say, I might not personally be able to fix racism. I might not be able to have a huge impact on racism and culture as an individual. But what I can do every day in my school and in my classroom is I can give kids who've had significant difficulty, who've experienced the trauma of racism, I can give them the skills to manage the stress that comes with that. What do you think about that? Talk to us about what you've seen schools be able to do and having success with that. It may be beyond the scope of a school to end racism in the United States, but it's not beyond the scope of a school to end racism within education. Now, many will say that educators have been working to oppose racism for generations, and that's true. What Dr. Comer taught us is that a school that is indifferent to the needs of a child perpetuates racism. Schools can be a place that rid themselves of all of the remnants of racism within their walls and focus on the development of optimizing the development of each child. And to do that, we have to listen to the head and the heart, to the social needs, the emotional needs, the identity needs of children of color, all children. You know, of the nation's 74 plus million children, black and brown children are now the majority. And we are killing young black men on the streets. And at the same time, we have programs in schools that are asking them to step up and lead the next generation into the future. Right. Yeah. It is quite a paradox at the least. It seems that we are at a moment in time in this country where we've got to make a decision. Well, look, I think the spirit of our country is on the line. The soul of America is on the line. We all have ways of blaming people on the other side of things. And sometimes those of us on one side or the other deserve the blame. But right now, the future of our country is on the line. For all of us, black and white, rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, gay and straight, male and female, the future is on the line for all of us. We have got to find a new normal. This is not about getting back to normal. This is about building a new normal. And the question every American should be asking themselves, what should the new normal look like? And I submit that in schools today, we are beginning to see the pattern of a new normal. Places where children learn empathy and self-love, places where children are taught to believe in themselves and believe in their future, we have seen light in schools. We have seen children shine, children with disabilities, children coming from great vulnerabilities, children whose families have been subjected to all kinds of violence and indifference and oppression, and yet they shine. You know, Dr. Lester Young, who will be in the podcast coming up in the next couple of weeks and who oversees my Brother's Keeper for New York City Department of Education, says we have to examine our beliefs. We have to ask ourselves when we see uh, children of color, what do we see? And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what this moment means 
and why we are at a turning point in our country for all of us, not just for people of color, that we can no longer escape this. We've got to address it and we've got to address it head on. This is a moment in which our country needs each of us to believe that we can build a new spirit of America. It will be better, more creative, more welcoming, more just, more peaceful if we believe that it is about us improvement, not just self-improvement, that it is about all of us, not just them, that it is about healing and creating, not just blaming and shaming. We got a lot of work to do to overcome steep problems, but the one thing I am sure of is we cannot do it in an us versus them mindset. And in schools today, teachers, parents, administrators, many pupil personnel folks, they're working really hard to create a mentality that says everyone belongs and our hope and dream is to create a coherent place where belonging and purpose and desire are nurtured for everyone. That's a vision for the United States, not just for kids. Tim, what we hear from many people around the country as we go out and interview folks in different communities is, I would really like to help, but I don't know what to do. As an individual, I don't see that I can have any impact. And people just need to go into their own communities and take care of their own because I don't think I can participate. What do you say to that? Well, I, I think we all inherently know uh, that children want to be good. That's true of all of us. We know the eyes of a three-year-old, what they look for. They look for fun, for excitement, to be good little boys and good little girls, to make mom and dad excited, to make grandpa and grandma proud, to make their neighbors think they're helping, to be helpers, to be contributors, to be uh, mischievous, to be creative, to be brilliant, right? This is what we all want to do. Children aren't waking up thinking, how do I beat up on somebody else? It's just not natural. The same is true for all of us. You know, there are also people who believe this can't be done in schools because these kids are lost and the trauma is so significant, the problems so deep that we can't really expect them to step up and lead. I don't see it that way. I think there's always a tendency when there's uh, trouble to be afraid you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And when you feel you can't do anything about it, there's a second tendency, which is to blame someone else for it. Both are wrong. Call it Americans, but I dare say it's the human hunger for purpose, for ultimate meaning and value, to be part of something as the words uh, so echo throughout history, something bigger than ourselves. Even if it means making us small to join in a larger enterprise so that we in our own small lives can feel we're contributing to the good of others. These are universal human hungers. When the culture thwarts them, humiliates that desire, mocks the person who risks themselves in pursuit of the good, makes a mockery of the idea of justice, it hurts the soul, it hurts the the very sense of uh, uh, purpose that each of us hungers to achieve. So when we can turn schools with just small steps to places that invite children to take a deep breath when stress arises, to go inward and say, I can handle this, those small skills 
allow us to withdraw from the tension and fear, humiliation that sometimes creeps into the human experience. And all of a sudden, a school begins to be a place where people feel safe. They feel heard. They feel validated. When I can say at the beginning of the school, they, hi, my name's Tim, and I'm anxious today. And my classmates can say, hi, Tim, we understand you're anxious today. We're here for you. And you go around the room. These are little exercises. They're, they're not complicated, but they work to change the culture. And when you change the culture, you make it possible for people to be their best selves and much less likely that we'll be our worst selves. That's what our country's hungry for now. We have seen so many kids that are in schools across the country that are in these programs that are doing amazing things. And I think what we do know from research and from work and education is that the resilience of a child, if you give that child the support that they need, if you give that child resources, if you give that child opportunity and access, it is they they beat the expectations. They don't just meet expectations. They surpass the expectations. We can do something. Everyone can do something about the the carnage in our cities, about the anxiety in our families, about the fear in our politics, about the hatred in our culture. We can all do something about it. The simplest thing we can do is not perpetuate it. Simple. Now you can say, well, that, what's that gonna do if I don't, a huge amount, it's like voting, you know? Only one vote doesn't matter. Actually, every vote does matter and every person who chooses not to perpetuate hatred and racism and fear and violence if marshaled together, this is what we see in a school. It's not one kid who learns, it's a classroom that learns. And when it's a classroom that learns, it's a community that learns. And when the community learns, all of a sudden the place changes. In the simplest way, it is what we are hungering for as human beings, I think. And I think what many educators have realized is maybe their special gift, the capacity to help children and indeed help themselves to transform the tension and fear and anxiety that so many children feel into an attention, a bonding, uh, a sense of purpose that can lift all boats. Tim, George Patterson, who was on the podcast and who is also a senior director with the My Brother's Keeper program out of New York, he said, we need these kids to lead because behind their pain is power. And it is amazing the transformation that can occur when you help these students learn how to change that pain into power. I think that is a critical point and one of the critical points as to why we need diverse leaders in our society. What are your thoughts? When I was uh, a young teacher, I helped start an after-school club. This was a high school group of young men, all of color, who they thought were on the verge of dropping out or, or uh, falling out of the system. And we labeled the group the Young Men's Leadership Group and invited kids that this was optional. They didn't have to do it. No grade, no benefit, no nothing to stay after school once a week and work together to help each other solve big problems. And I remember uh, early on, someone said to me, those kids aren't leaders. Why did you call that the leadership group? Such and such is getting D's or such and such has been six to eight days absent. Such and such started a fight two weeks ago, whatever it was. 
And I thought to myself, in the question was the big miss, right? The whole hunger of these young men. They're looking for someone who cares. All these young men needed to escape and transform the pain that they had experienced, many of them beyond description. All they needed was someone who saw them and believed in them, someone who cared. That's what they kept saying to me, Mr. Shriver here, nobody cares. And when you look at the data, the majority of kids don't believe that someone in their school cares about them. When that number goes to 100%, we'll have a different country. Because the pain that surrounds children and frequently has dominated their lives can be transformed, but it can only be transformed by a compassionate, committed, transformative relationship with an adult who believes in that child. These are maybe bold and wild dreams, but the good news is we know, we know something about how to do this. We know how to teach each other how to listen and be empathic, how to be courageous, how to be brave, and have the values necessary to transform the situation we're in. We just have to have the will to do it. What's your advice for the individual who's listening to this? Practical, real advice for someone who is listening and says, I believe in what you're talking about. I know we're at a time of transformation in America. I want to be a part of this and I want to participate. What can I do now? Well, I spoke the other day to uh, a statewide PTA and I ended my remarks uh, and I described the work of Scarlett Lewis. Uh, her little boy, Jesse, was killed at Sandy Hook at the age of six. And Scarlett has dedicated her life to a curriculum she calls Choose Love. And she's dedicated the curriculum to her son, who she believes is still with her. And she's also dedicated the curriculum to Adam Lanza, who took her little boy's life. Because she believes that if Adam Lanza had found someone if someone had shown him the love he was so desperately looking for, maybe her little boy would still be alive. And I thought to myself, that's everything I could hope for. It, we don't all have a big stage. Most of our lives are lived in small networks. Everyone's had a tough interaction. And every one of us can listen to Scarlett and in and after that tough interaction, Choose love for the person on the other side. Uh, it may not seem big, but remember, as my Uncle Bobby said uh, many, many years ago, that uh, these are small ripples of hope. Choose love. Choose empathy. Choose compassion. Choose justice. Choose to be in solidarity with your fellow Americans. Stop labeling them and choose to be in solidarity with them. And then each of our little ripples of hope can form a big wave and we can build the country that so many of us are desperate to see come to life and the sooner the better.